On June 26, 2015, LGBTQ plus individuals and allies celebrated as the Supreme Court in a 5-4 ruling ruled that the fundamental right to marry is guaranteed to same-sex couples by both the Due Process Clause and the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment to the United States Constitution. Today's episode is for the political and legal history lovers like myself. Sorry, not sorry to those that are not. There is nothing boring about decisions that gave us equal rights, so come on and learn some history from a named plaintiff in this famous ruling. While most people across the country know of Obergefell v. Hodges, the landmark case, what they might not know is that the case was one of several consolidated cases from the Sixth Circuit that challenged the constitutionality of state bans on same-sex marriage. Obergefell v. Hodges included plaintiffs from Michigan, Ohio, Tennessee, and Kentucky. In Kentucky, Burke v. Bajir, a U.S. District Court announced on February 12th of 2014 its decision that the Equal Protection Clause required Kentucky to recognize valid same-sex marriages from other jurisdictions. The plaintiff, Greg Burke, married Michael DeLeon in Ontario, Canada in 2004. However, the legal marriage within Canada was not being recognized by Kentucky. Today, we hear directly from Greg Burke. And while you will hear much of his story in this interview, we encourage you to pick up his book, Gay, Catholic, and American, coming out in September of We are filming on U of L's campus today, which is my has a special place in my heart because it is my home university. Uh, I went to undergrad here in from 2008 to 2012 and served as student body president here in 2012. Uh, so it holds a very special place in my heart, and it also holds a special place in our guest's heart today. Today we have none other than Greg Burke, and I'm going to let him introduce himself now. Thank you, Curtis. Uh, it's a great pleasure for me to be here today and, and to talk with you. I always love coming back to the University of Louisville. Um, I actually grew up just about a mile from campus, so um, this is my home. I went to U of L as an undergraduate student and am just thrilled to be part of the Louisville alumni group and the, the Louisville com community. It's really quite remarkable. Uh, what's what a, a wonderful accepting climate uh, this university has developed since I was here in the 1970s. So I grew up in a rural area of Kentucky and Owensboro. And so for me, like coming to Louisville was a big city. But what was that like for you growing up in this area? Well, put it in time perspective, first of all. So I, was, I started here in 1975 through 1979. I was an undergraduate. And as much as the world has changed now, 
uh, even Louisville had not changed much in the 1970s. So, for example, at the University of Louisville, there really wasn't a, a student group. There, there weren't any uh, faculty who really were sympathetic or outspoken about LGBTQ people and, and being welcoming and inclusive. That movement hadn't even started yet at UofL. So it was very different for me, even though I was coming from the city. Um, there were some places in the city of Louisville where people could go, um, gay people could go and, and congregate and you know, hang out and network. Very few. But, but they were there. There was nothing, though, seriously at the University of Louisville in those days. So it, it, was, it was a bit challenging for us. Right. And obviously that was prior to the gay marriage ruling. That was prior to a lot of equal rights that we've seen over that time period. When did you know you were gay, and when did you kind of have that coming out process? Right. So I, I, just, I knew I was different growing up as a child, but I, I finally figured it out by the time I was 13. But... Um, there really wasn't a path forward for me as an openly gay person that I could see or, or right. figure out at that age. So I fought it. You know, I, I dated girls through high school and um, partially just a little bit starting into college. But uh, I reached a point when I was 19 years old. Um, I was a sophomore here at the University of Louisville, and that's when I said to myself, you know, if I don't, if I don't face this and deal with it, it's going to kill me. And, and so I, I had that revelation. I said, okay, I'm going to do this, and we'll see what happens with it. But it was really at age 19. I was just starting uh, my second year here at UofL. Wow. We have a similar story on that. It was my second year as well when I decided to come out. So, um, so what was that perception like whenever you actually did make those steps to come out to, you know, to members of campus, your friends, those kind of things? Right. Uh, I, I like to explain to people how different it was, the, the process of coming out in, in the 1970s. Um, first of all, you know, we didn't have cell phones. We didn't have the Internet. There was no social media. You couldn't drop something on social media and have the whole world know in 30 right. seconds, right? So coming out in the 70s meant strategically engaging specific people um, at a time when you thought it was acceptable and appropriate to, to bring up the subject. So I had to seek out opportunities with my friends and family where I could have that conversation and, you know, look them straight in the eye and have those discussions. And that was painful. And it took a long time. It took a very long time to work it out. Um, but it's something that, that people had to do. I wasn't the only person, you know, doing that in the 70s. Other people were doing it as well. But, um, you know, there wasn't a roadmap. And, there, there, you know, there weren't mentors. There weren't peers. There wasn't right. media that you could go to for, for information and support. So it, it was mostly a personal journey. Yeah. I think that's actually something you bring up is important to our rural youth because, like, here in Kentucky, even though, like, it would be nice to be able to drop that social media clip, you know, on YouTube and say, hey, you know, I'm out. I think a lot of our rural kids still go through that personal journey, you know, because— mm. They're not comfortable just, you know, posting it on social media like some of the more accepting environments out there in the U.S. Um, so with that, um, what would you say to those those kids out there that are having that personal journey? And could you incorporate kind of what you do here at UofL and UK with the different alumni groups there? Right. So it's never easy to come out. I think perhaps it, it's, um, it's a little more easier technically to, to do that now, but it's the journey is still difficult for the person right. who is who is coming to that point and taking that step. Because 
it, it's one that's really difficult to back away from. You know, once you've done it, you, you really can't go back. It's really difficult. So I understand why people labor over that and they want to do it selectively. I mean, I, I didn't, you know, call my whole family together when I came out, right. right? So it's like you pick the people who you thought were going to be most sympathetic and you talk to those people. And so I think for people who are thinking about coming out now, wherever you are, that's not a bad way to do it. You know, right. it's like you find that person that you trust who you're pretty sure is going to accept you a after you make this move and and kind of p put your toe in the water first before you jump in. I mean, that makes perfect sense to me. So I would encourage people to do that. Don't feel like you have to, to make a big show of it. Um, you know, don't think you have to, you know, put a flag, a rainbow flag on and, you know, prance right. through the streets or whatever. It's like you don't have to do that. It's just... It doesn't have to be a big grand move. Just talk to somebody. Um, you mentioned the University of Louisville and the alumni group. So, um, and I can't remember what year we started. I'm thinking it was right. Around 2012. It was around, I was going to say 2012 was, was what I thought. So uh, the university wanted to start an LGBT alumni group, which was remarkable. And we uh, received outreach, my, I did, and some other alumni received outreach from Brian Buford about uh, the university's intent to establish a group like this. So it was pretty unprecedented. There weren't a lot of uh, gay alumni groups throughout right. the country with universities. So we were one of the first ones to form um, officially, that right. is under the auspices of the Louisville alumni group. Um, really one of the first ones I would say in the South at all. I, I believe so, yeah. yes. So we're proud of that. So we, we launched. We. Um, have a group that's been active over the last few years. We've had several different uh, kind of uh, marquee events, I think, but then, you know, just a lot of routine things that other alumni associations do. You know, we'll have game watches, you know, we'll have socials at bars. We have um, events on campus where we have speakers that are, are related to um, LGBTQ interests. So um, it, it's really been a great way for me to sort of reconnect with the university. So, I'll, you know, I'll just tell you for a lot of people like myself, um, you know, I graduated in 1979, and then I really didn't have much to do with the University of Louisville because I didn't think I was welcome here as right. an openly gay person. Um, I didn't think the Alumni Association w would be interested in, in having me back and having me around. Right. But when the university signaled its intention to, to form this group and support it, you know, financially and every other way, then that was a game changer. So when, when I started coming back and getting involved with the Louisville Alumni, um, that really intensified my, my networking here at UofL. And so now I'm, you know, I'm here all the time, I'm engaged with uh, a lot of the folks other, uh, and other alumni as well. Um, and it's really wonderful because I've been giving this, given this avenue now so that I can reconnect with this university that I love. And, and right. you know, as you mentioned, it's not the only one. So I've got degrees from a couple of other schools and I'm active in uh, LGBT alumni groups also at the University of Kentucky and at the University of Notre Dame. So I've found it to be really rewarding for me to be able to go back and, and kind of rekindle and reestablish those relationships with these universities that have been so important to, to my growth and development. Can you talk a little bit about your excitement on Notre Dame finally recognizing that organization and kind of that process that you went through? Right. Yeah, I'm happy to talk about that because yeah. it's honestly has been something that's been in the works for 30 years. Um, there have, have been alumni groups, some loosely formed in more recent years. We've had a pretty um, well-organized, well-funded um, 
group called GALA, Gay and Lesbian Alumni of Notre Dame and St. Mary's College, that we have been lobbying the University of Notre Dame uh, Alumni Association to accept us as an affinity group. And just so you know, Notre Dame, like most other colleges in the country right now, has numerous affinity groups. You know, they have an African-American group, they have you know, Asian, uh, they, they have, you name it, they've got a women's group, they've got you know, an international group, um, but they refuse for many, many years to allow us to be recognized as an official group. So just yesterday, um, in the midst of this Pride season this year, in 2021, they decided that this was the time to, to, you know, to finally open the door and let us in. So I'm, I'm really thrilled about it. I've been involved in that work for, for years. Um, many, many other folks at Notre Dame have also, on both sides, so people within the university have been working to get this done, and, and people outside of the university in the alumni community have been working uh, vigorously to get it done. But, but as you can imagine, with a, a religious institution like that, you know, there were folks that didn't want to see this happen and prevented it from happening for, for quite a few years. Yeah. And, you know, I, I definitely, I think I can speak on behalf of the entire LGBTQ community when I say that we thank you for all the work that you're doing for students, um, especially for me. You know, I came to L between 2008 to 2012. Uh, in 2012, I was, as far as I know, the first openly gay student body president that L had. Um, I was also the first that brought di diversity person into the student government staff. Um, so having those kind of things and then having you all start the UofL Alumni Association, I think that's really what you know transforms campuses. You have to have those different groups start to recognize that you know these people exist and they deserve the representation. And so speaking of that representation, I want to turn directly into this six-year anniversary today. Mm -hmm. Um, so would you like to tell people what this is the six-year anniversary of? Well, um, <laughs> <laughs> nothing major, really. It's not a big deal. <laughs> no big deal. But, and, yeah. <laughs> but th this, is, uh, this is the six-year anniversary today of the decision that was rendered in Obergefell versus Hodges. That is the U.S. Supreme Court case that resulted in nationwide marriage equality. So, um, you know, my husband and I were the named plaintiffs in the Kentucky case, Burke versus Bashir. Our case advanced through the district court system and, and the appellate court. And as we moved to the U.S. Supreme Court, the Kentucky case was merged with cases from Ohio, Michigan, and Tennessee. And the name on the case was Obergefell because that was the name of the Ohio case, and, and they filed first. So, um, you know, it, we were part of that process for a couple of years leading up to the Supreme Court case as we went through the, you know, the lower courts. And um, it was very, very rewarding for us on Absolutely, that day yes. and in 2015. <laughs> and it's rewarding every day since, right. <laughs> especially on anniversaries. But, you know, it, it really, it changed a lot of people's lives. And it changed our lives also. You know, Michael and my husband, Michael and I, um, it, it changed a lot of things. We, you know, leading up to that decision, there was so much discussion about, the, the, the benefits of, of being married, the legal benefits and all the privileges that you get, and over a thousand, uh, supposedly. Right. Um, and you don't really realize that until you start reaping those benefits. Um, things that we used to have to work for or things that we didn't get at all in the past suddenly became available to us as, as a recognized married couple. So it, it, changes, it changed our life then, but we benefit from that every single day Absolutely. in numerous ways. 
So for me, uh, you know, I was probably the part of the last generation that remembers, you know, what it was like to want to get married and not be able to. Um, you know, I was in my early 20s whenever, you know, a lot of this was still in the court system. And, you know, for me, that day was just tremendous because I, I was working in Jacksonville, Florida. And as soon as, and I was watching, you know, everything come in and we were all waiting and all, you know, crossing our fingers. And, you know, for as soon as I heard the announcement, I literally, I said, I'm leaving, I'm going to get on a flight and I'm flying to Louisville to go celebrate with all of my friends. Oh, that's so, awesome. you know, like that's, that's the tremendous, like just relief, the joy. I think that, you know, so many Americans across the country felt in that moment. I mean, I'm getting goosebumps. You can see the goosebumps <laughs> right here, just thinking about it. Right. And so for me, it's just, it's tremendous. The process that you all went through and, you know, it's rare that you actually get to meet somebody that has truly transformed your life in the way that you have mine, ours, you know, people all across the U.S. and in Kentucky. Um, so obviously I'm fangirling me, a little bit, you know. <laughs> so you, you said a couple of things there that I want to want to respond to. First of all, you know, being of the first generation that maybe um, one of the most recent generations that remembers what it was like to not have access to, to same-sex marriage. But I am from another generation. Right. Um, people in my generation talk about how they remember when they found out John Kennedy was shot. Right. It was the moment that they always remember and never forget. And I remember it. I mean, it's vivid. But, you know, we, in my generation, we always, we've been talking about that for, you know, like 50 years now. My stepdad um, still talks about that. Right. <laughs> yeah. so, right. So the interesting thing, and I was going to ask you, but you told me already was do you remember you know when and where you found out about the decision and what was your reaction and the reason i was going to ask that is because you would not believe um how many people come to us and tell us that story yep. you know unsolicited um i remember exactly when i find out this yep. is this is what i did this is how i celebrated you know this is what it what it meant to me um it and i, I mean i hear those stories and i get goosebumps right. because <laughs> you I, you know, I know where I was. I was in court, and I right. was listening. <laughs> I was listening to you know the justices give their opinions. You know, in, in favor and in opposition, and it was it was a remarkable experience. It was a once in a lifetime thing. But you know, that was my personal experience. So many people that I talk to have these stories to share, and it's like if I just I think about that because. It was happening all over the country, you know, and p even people who already had access to marriage equality. So they were partying and celebrating, you know, in California and, you know, yeah. New York and all these states where they already had marriage equality. But it was such just a moment in time in history that it touched so many people. Um, and it's, I mean, I still <laughs> marvel that I was part of that. I mean, I, right. I don't even think about it that way. <laughs> yeah. um, but but clearly, I, I was there, and, and I saw it and heard it, and, and I know it impacted a lot of people's lives. And thank God we get to celebrate that every year. Every I hope it year. is something that we, we never forget. Yeah. And I mean, that's, uh, you know, knowing exactly where you are is, is normally those bad experiences that we face. You know, the John Kennedy assassination, for me, it was like September 11th. Right. You know, everybody knows where they yeah. were. But to have that happy experience for all of LGBTQ plus people that we will always remember and can always know exactly where we were, I, I think everybody's got that kind of story, you know? Right. Obviously, this was not the first step. And you experienced whenever Kentucky voted on the referendum 
you know, prior to mm-hmm. all of this, as somebody who, you know, I believe, were you married at that point or had you just, because I think it was around yeah, 2004 when you were that's married? That's correct, right. And, and that's when the, the Kentucky passed its state constitutional amendment barring same-sex marriage. So um, the two are kind of related. Uh, the, um, the campaign that led up to that vote was taking place throughout the Commonwealth. And at that time, there was a vast majority of Kentuckians who were uh, opposed to same-sex marriage. It was a preemptive strike just to make sure that we never have things happen in Kentucky that that, uh, people saw happening in other states. They hadn't happened yet because in 2004, um, even New York had not yet early in the year, had not yet started um, with its uh, marriage equality and and offering same-sex marriages. Um, But people in Kentucky were scared. And it wasn't Kentucky alone. It was pretty much all the southern states and the other conservative Midwestern states that passed these constitutional amendments. Right. Um, 75% of Kentuckians voted in favor of that amendment. Mm -hmm. And... um, you're probably too young to remember it, but uh, it was it was a pretty difficult time to be openly gay in those days yeah. in in um, in Kentucky anywhere even in Louisville it was difficult. So um, it, Michael and I, my husband and I, found ourselves in a situation where we felt like we we needed to do something to kind of respond to and, and put that. Um, some of that negative energy and, and, and the hate that we were experiencing, um, you know, we wanted to address that in some way. So we decided to go to Ontario, Canada, which was the only place in North America where we could get married. And on March, uh, March 29th, I got to get the date right, of 2004, we uh, were legally married in Canada. So when we got married in Canada legally, we had obviously no idea that we would ever be sitting in the United States Supreme Court (laughs) trying to get them to say, this is a legal marriage in Kentucky. Um, But that's what it led to. I mean, we didn't have a grand plan, right? So we just had a small plan that turned into a bigger plan, um, and and it worked out remarkably well. But certainly when we decided to get married, I mean, obviously it was because we loved each other, and, you know, we'd been together for, you know, 20 some years at that point and we had two children and we thought it was the appropriate thing to do um, but we we just had no clue that it would ever lead to um, where we ended up in the Supreme Court yeah and you were asking you kind of mentioned that I may not remember it the only things that I remember about that referendum is my family was strongly opposed I think that was the first time I really heard the phrase gay um, you know, you, when you're growing up in a rural family, you're growing up in that uh, Christian upbringing, that word is not mentioned. Mm-hmm. And so mm-hmm. I remember they were very opposed to it, and they would go around asking people, you know, are you voting for this? And whenever somebody's like, yeah, I don't care if they get married or not, they would be like, I just can't believe that you're going to vote that way. You know, so I experienced that. And so obviously that's why I was, I didn't come out till college because I didn't feel safe in that environment. Um, so I remember a little bit about what that felt like. Mm-hmm. I also I worked a little bit for the ACLU whenever they, uh, right. in 20, I believe it was about 2010, they put out uh, another kind of survey across Kentucky, and that number dropped from 75 to, I believe, around 60, mm-hmm. uh, which was a huge, you know, huge drop. You know, so it just kind of shows that progression over time leading up to this case. Right. Um, so tell us a little bit about, you know, how you and Michael met. Tell us that kind of story. 
Well, I mean, it's really not very glamorous. We, <laughs> we, we did meet at a, at a gay bar in Lexington. So there uh, was a bar there, which was called The Bar. And uh, it's a very old facility. It's got a lot of history. It's, uh, from what we've been told, it's the third oldest continuously operating gay bar, um, I think, east of the, of the Mississippi. So, I mean, it's got a lot of history. It's been around for a long time. Um, and, but, I mean, it's not like a nice place or anything. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> well, at least it wasn't then. I mean, they, they've, you know, they've spiffed it up a little bit lately. But, um, you know, there was really one place to go in Lexington. We met in 1982. We were both students at the University of Kentucky. My husband was an agriculture major. Um, right, yeah. So he was from Hardin County. I was uh, a graduate student in the business school. I was studying for my MBA. And... Um, you know, we, we met at the bar, and it turned out that we lived three doors apart, uh, off campus, about a block off campus, and um, you know, it just it was very convenient, um, right. <laughs> if not, you know, destined. We of course like to think of it that way that we were destined to meet, and you know, it was a great coincidence that we lived so close together and uh, spent, uh, you know, so much time together. It really didn't take long for us to kind of figure out that we were with the people we wanted to spend the rest of our life with. That's awesome. You think it's not glamorous, but all of us do because all of our stories are always like we met on social media. You know, like we met on, you don't want to say certain apps, you know, so, so I think that, yeah, that is stuff a, didn't exist you know, in our day. It's exactly. like you had to do it all the old fashioned way. It's like it, it wasn't easy doing anything. You know, right. Right. So. Yeah. And that's, I mean, that is a huge difference in just the way you had to meet people. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I think that's, uh, I think still a lot of people meet in bars, you know, that's still one of the most, you know, safe spaces for LGBTQ plus people to be in. I, I agree. And, you know, it's entertainment, it's mm -hmm. social. Um, there are so many benefits to, to gay bars. And, and I understand, you know, it's, it's a great place to meet people. Um, yeah. And you can feel relatively safe. Although it wasn't always that way, you know, when I was growing up, you know, there were, you know, targets, um, made of, of people right. and vehicles um, at the gay bars. It, it was it was dangerous to, mm -hmm. to go into a gay bar. And I, you know, I spent so much of my life looking over my shoulder, walking in and, you know, coming out and um, getting in the car and, you know, hoping my tires hadn't been slashed or, mm -hmm. you know, to have something thrown at me. So there was there was a lot of that took, that took place in the 70s and the 80s, too. And the so, unfortunate thing then, I mean, people just got away with it. You know, a lot of times that wasn't even... Uh, cops wouldn't look into it or anything. You know, one of the things that just happened, President Biden announced that Pulse was going to become a national monument. And, mm -hmm. you know, so like that really, in my opinion, seeing that kind of recognition from, you know, our White House now is, is huge. Tell us a little bit about uh, the adoption process. We know that you and Michael have two wonderful sons now uh, that, have, mm -hmm. that have grown up and actually left the house. So, right, yeah. so tell us about that process. Sure. Um, Michael and I decided in the late 1990s that we thought we wanted to have children. And we were close to, we were four, close to 40 when we, want, when we started the process. And at that time, we only knew of uh, one other same-sex couple that had successfully adopted children in Kentucky. They, um, they were um, working with an adoption agency in Louisville called Adoptions of Kentucky that was the only agency in the state that would work with same-sex couples at that time. So we were among the first same-sex couples who went through that process. And um, you know, we, so we didn't have 
a lot of people or resources that we could rely on. Uh, it just wasn't very common. It wasn't happening a lot. So again, we had to figure a lot of things out as, as we went along and just do a lot of research and talk to people. And you know, a lot of that was with attorneys, of course, right. um, because it's a legal process. Um, at, we met with the agency and started the process. And um, the thing that we learned that was kind of troubling, but you know, it was just it was part of part of the whole process was that we would not be able to co-adopt the child, right? So only the Commonwealth of Kentucky stated that you had to be a married couple if you wanted to have both names on the birth certificate of a child. So in the adoption process, when the birth certificate gets gets reissued or updated, uh, we couldn't have that in both of our names. And, you know, and, and in 1999, we weren't legally married yet either. But, um, but we couldn't, we couldn't co-adopt. So what that meant was only one of us could be the legal uh, adoptive parent for our first child. So uh, we decided, because at that time, my husband w was working for an employer that had a pretty rich adoption benefit. So we said, okay, uh, he's gonna be the adoptive parent. But what that meant was that I had no legal relationship with that child. Right. And that can, can be a cause for concern and stress, um, and it was for many, many years. And, and actually, that was our motivation for filing our, our lawsuit. We wanted to force the Commonwealth of Kentucky to recognize our marriage so that we could co-adopt our children right. um, and have all the protection and the benefits for them and our family that we deserved. So that, that was why we you know, wanted to get the, the lawsuit through the process and get that recognition. But the, adopting a child was not easy then. It's not easy now. It's very, very difficult. Um, we worked with uh, the one adoption agency that would work with us. It was awkward. It was very strange in a lot of respects because of some of the things that we had to do. Uh, you know, Michael and I were both openly gay, and, and so when we had social workers come in, and um, you know, we were honest with them, not knowing if that was going to be the thing that prevented us from being able to, to adopt after all. So uh, you know, we, we did our best to present ourselves openly and honestly which I thought was the, the best thing to do. And you know, somehow everything worked out and, and we got it done. But yeah, not, not easy at all. So obviously uh, your sons were, they were in their teens probably whenever you were going through the gay marriage right. ruling. Uh, what, was, what do you think that they felt their experience whenever they were going through that? Well, first, I will point out that they were also plaintiffs in the case. So they were named, uh, and that was only after we had a couple of family meetings and we told them what we were thinking about doing, uh, and they agreed. Right. And then there was a separate session that we had with them where we discussed the fact that the attorneys wanted to add the, the children, the two children, as plaintiffs in the case because they thought it would be a stronger case because clearly yes. it was about the kids and you know they were the ones who had as much to benefit from from marriage equality um, as we did they probably had more to benefit right. from it than we did so they were added to the case um, it was for our children I think it was it was kind of fun for them I think they enjoyed the ride but I will also say that they were both students in Catholic high schools at the time wow. And, you know, the Archdiocese of Louisville and the, the Catholic schools that it operates here in the city um, were not at all 
favorable um, towards marriage equality. They didn't support it. In fact, they fought very vigorously to um, oppose marriage equality. So a lot of the messaging that was coming into the high schools from the teachers and the administration and the archdiocese was, was negative and critical. And so they had to become advocates for, um, for marriage equality. Right. Now, as you might imagine, we're talking about young people in high school, and this was in 2015, 16, uh, four, 2013, 14, and 15. So not that long ago. So there were a lot of really progressive students in those schools that believed in marriage equality. And that was what I think helped them kind of kind of get through yeah. that that period. I know it was it was difficult for them at times and you know they had to become sort of advocates for the cause um, and they they kind of stepped up and did what they needed to do. But I know it was difficult for them. I can imagine, especially going through that during those teenage years, how difficult that could be. So we definitely appreciate them just as much as we appreciate, you know, you and Michael for doing what, what you all have done for all of us. Right, right. And, you know, it's, yeah, the other thing you have to, to appreciate now is that um, there were a vast number of people who were involved in that case. A Burgerfell versus Hodges, everybody's mind goes automatically to Jim Obergefell. Right. Right. There were 37 plaintiffs in that case. 37. So there were 30 adults and seven youth who were who were in that case, who were part of that case. And in Kentucky, we had six different families, six families who were part of Burke versus Bashir. So it was, um, you know, it was definitely a group effort. And you know, when we are giving credit to folks for this for happening, and it wasn't just the Obergefell plaintiffs. There were right. all the other, <laughs> you know, dozens and dozens of plaintiffs who who worked this successfully through. The court system in other states. Um, you know, we're just the ones that ran into the roadblock at the Sixth Circuit Court of Appeals that that allowed us to move on to the Supreme Court for a final decision. Definitely, and I think that's uh, when I was in law school. Uh, and I'll, I wonder what they're going to do now in terms of uh, the practice examples that they, you know, put you through on these mock trials because it was always every year gay adoption. Oh. Every year was always like you had to argue for or against gay adoption. And so that's, that was my experience going through law school. I'm wondering what their topic is now. Uh, it probably has something to do with <laughs> trans rights, I'm probably. guessing, yeah, because that's, you know, that's where the challenges are these days mm -hmm. and probably will continue to be for a while. So that's, I hope Absolutely. that's what they're talking about in law school because that's what you know, we need to have attorneys out there ready to, to defend and work on. Definitely. Uh, so one of the things we do in this uh, show is we have this section called A Heap of Trouble. Uh, segment in which we allow you to tell a story in which you know either there was a part of LGBTQ culture that you weren't expecting um, or that you know you may have gotten into a little bit of trouble from you know putting your foot in your mouth or those kind of things that uh, we talk about on the show. We do that so we can help you know kids in rural areas or young adults that are you know facing that that have never really heard a lot about gay culture. Uh, can you think of any moment like that? Well I did it I, it's a, something that I struggle with because if you if you've and I think you do know uh, Curtis a lot about my life and kind of the way things have have uh, progressed. But my husband and I and my family, you know, we've not lived a life really that's in gay culture. We are about as mainstream as you can yeah. possibly be, right? So you know, we we go to our our Catholic church. We've been members there for thirty three years. You know, our kids went to Catholic school. 
you know, we have corporate jobs that we've worked at. Um, so, you know, I can't think of an experience where, I, you know, I kind of got, you know, into gay culture and I said, oh, what have I gotten myself into now? Right. I've got a lot of examples from my life where I've gotten myself in trouble and I thought, what have I done now? But I'll tell you, I'll tell you about one that, um, you know, I don't know, maybe somebody can relate to this. But um, one thing we didn't talk about was the fact that in 2012, I was uh, forced to resign my position as a Boy Scout leader with uh, our troop at the Arch at uh, the University. I'm sorry, at Our Lady of Lords Church. So we have a Boy Scout troop there, and I had been a leader for probably about 10 years with the Cub Scouts and the Boy Scouts. Um, I was forced to resign because I was openly gay. And that was the time when I really probably made my, my biggest uh, step or my biggest move into open activism or public activism. Right. Because after I was, um, was forced to resign, the Courier-Journal, I was contact, you know, contacted by a, um, a reporter and they wanted to do a story on, on the, the subject and, and the dismissal. So I remember agreeing to do that because I was really upset and disappointed with the Boy Scouts of America because I really thought we had reached a point in 2012 where they were evolving as an organization and were ready to start allowing openly gay people and lesbians to be, to be adult leaders. I thought we were there. We, we weren't there. So... Um, there was that morning when I went to pick up the newspaper, and you know this was 2012, so I still used to get the, the right. printed newspaper, and I went to, <laughs> went to the front porch, and I got the, the paper in, and there was my picture on the front page with this story about um, my dismissal from my unit. And uh, that was when I had my, oh, gosh, what have I done now? Yeah. <laughs> Feeling. And, and uh, you know, I thought, oh, well, you know, there's no going back now. And so I, I really didn't choose that it sort of happened to me but what I did choose was how I was going to respond to that mm -hmm. and not back away from it and, and take that uh, opportunity to develop a voice as as someone who could be an advocate and even an activist for for change yeah and I'll be honest that was actually the first time I'd heard your name was whenever all that was going on because that was whenever I was here on campus, and that was a, a big ordeal here on campus, just hearing what I was going through that with the Boy Scouts. Mm -hmm. um, how has that progressed today versus in 2012? There have been big changes with the Boy Scouts of America. Uh, in 2014, uh, we were successful at getting the Boy Scouts to change their membership policy for youth. So they right. have different policies, one for youth, one for adults and volunteers and employees. So the youths policy was changed in 2014 and they allowed openly gay youth to be members. That was a big deal. That, that was huge. the first yeah. crack uh, with the Boy Scouts of America. Then in 2000, and, and then we continued to work. We continued to, to put pressure on the Boy Scouts to change their policy for adults because I could not, still could not return after leaving in 2012. I couldn't return to leadership uh, because there was still a rule in 2015 that prevented me from doing that. Finally, finally in 2015, the Boy Scouts of America changed their adult membership policy. Now, it was good, but not good enough. What they did with the adult policy was they said that we're going to allow the sponsoring organization 
to decide if they have their own policy. So if they want to have their policy to, to, to discriminate, they're free to do that. Well, of course, the, the churches did that. So if you don't know, 75% of the units uh, for the Boy Scouts of America are sponsored by churches in America. So almost all the units are, have a church behind them. And most of those churches, um, the, the two biggest churches that sponsor Boy Scout units are you know, the Church of Latter-day Saints and the Catholic Church. So those two churches um, were very much opposed to letting openly gay or lesbian leaders work in their units. So I still have not been given approval to return to my units because the Archdiocese of Louisville has a policy that says they will not allow openly gay or lesbian people to be leaders, um, which is unfortunate. Right. So that's still a battle that that we're going through and still something that people, you know, out there can be vocal about is, you know, getting the, honestly, the people that need to be mentors like you and back into those kind of programs. So. Right. Yeah, there's definitely, there's work left to do there. And even with youth, I mean, there's, mm-hmm. it's, it's a culture in the Boy Scouts of America that, that needs change and development. Only recently they've allowed for girls to be admitted to the Boy Scout yes. program. It's now not Boy Scouts of America anymore. It's Scouts USA. So it's, I mean, the, the organization has evolved. Um, but there's still work to do to change the culture. Yeah, and I mean, if you, how traumatic is that, you know, as a young LGBTQ plus person going through, you know, Boy Scouts, the modern-day Boy Scouts, that know that they couldn't serve as an adult, you know, at this program mm-hmm. that they've been a part of their, you know, their whole life. So definitely, you know, that's a big policy issue that should be changed. Um, so... We've kind of, uh, I think we've talked about a whole lot of stuff. Um, at this point, I want to go ahead and talk about or do our pot of gold question, okay. uh, which is where I get to ask you one final question, and you can ask me anything you want for one final question okay. to me. Uh, so my question is actually, I'm going to include some of your, uh, what we do is a do's and don'ts segment. So for me, my final question is going to be, Obviously, you and Michael have been together for 39 years. That is a long time, unprecedented in my opinion in in LGBTQ plus world. You know, there's just it, that's a, a long time to be together. Um, y'all been really pioneers together in in terms of getting all of us rights. So my question is: is what are the do's and don'ts that you would give to LGBTQ plus people out there? Uh, the do's and don'ts of finding somebody that's right for you for to live that long of a marriage with? <laughs> I think do's. So if it's at all possible, do find someone that you're compatible with. Um, if at all possible, find someone who shares your faith. So I will tell you, for Michael and me, we are lifelong practicing Roman Catholics. Some of our first dates after meeting in the bar um, involved going to church together. We've been going to church together regularly, I would say religiously, for the last almost 40 years. And, you know, if you want to have longevity in your relationship, I would really encourage you to try to find someone who you know, it doesn't even necessarily have to be exactly the same faith. That's a, that's a perk. It's a bonus. Right. <laughs> but I, I think it, it helps so much because that way you can experience things together, which is kind of another do, is find things that you can do together and things that you can share. Michael and I have, I mean, 
a lot of things that we do separately. I mean, he likes to do pottery and, you know, I write and do other, other yeah. things. I was a scout leader. He didn't do that. You know, so a lot of things that we, we did, we do separately. But we found a lot of things that we really enjoy doing together. You know, for example, we're both members of uh, Pride Cats. We're founding members mm-hmm. of the University of Kentucky LGBTQ alumni group. And that's something that we can and do enjoy doing together. So we found some common interests that we can we can share, things that are important to the both of us. And um, th- that really helps with the relationship because we can spend quality time together where we're not on our phones or not watching a screen or, or whatever. Uh, and it's also productive. So, you know, we're working to, to build up an organization at the University of Kentucky that, um, that will have a future. Mm-hmm. So, you know, fi- find things like that that you can do together and it will just make life so much easier. Um, one more thing is find, find ways, do find ways to, to make each other laugh. And That's we great, yeah. still <laughs> do it all the time. You know, we do it differently now than we did, you know, when we were in our twenties, <laughs> um, you know, we're just, now it's, you know, text and, um, whatever other ways we, we find to communicate, but, um, we still make each other laugh. That's great. And that, that is so important. I mean, mm-hmm. you've got to be able to, to laugh with each other, you know, laugh at yourself, laugh at each other. It's like it's all there. But, find, you know, find ways to enjoy life together. That's really what's important. Um, in terms of, of don'ts, um, you know, don't try to be something that you're not um, because, I mean, really, don't waste your time trying to impress this other person in your life. It, you know, yeah. if, if they love you, you don't have to do that. It's, it's I mean, in, in my opinion, yeah. it, it's kind of, you know, wasteful. Um, find other ways to, to spend your time than, than just trying to impress someone with how much money you make or, you know, what kind of clothes Absolutely. you wear, what car you're driving. It's like if you love somebody, that's that's not important. Don't, don't waste your time um, with that. And, you know, also just don't waste your time. I mean, find important things to do and, and ways to engage um, together. Uh, you know, life is short. You know, Michael and I have been blessed with almost 40 years together. Um, don't take any day for granted. You know, enjoy every day and, and you know, look at today and say, okay, what? this is a day that God has given me. I've been blessed. What can I possibly do with this one day that, um, that I'm going to feel good about when I lay my head down at night. And Absolutely. so that's what I try to do. It's like, don't waste, don't waste a day. It's rare that I waste a day. And, <laughs> and that's advice I would give to anybody. That's some great advice. And I'm sure a lot of us have been looking for that type of, you know, advice out there. It's amazing that y'all lasted, you know, 39 years. It's, that's just huge. It's a long time to be with somebody. So you can tell there's a lot of love there and with your whole family. So thank you for that. All right. Is there any question you have for me? <laughs> well, I'm, it's, I guess, a little bit different. Um, as you know, I've uh, recently written a book that's going to be published. It's called Gay, Catholic, and American, My Legal Battle for Marriage Equality and Inclusion. So I've expressed to you already that my faith is extremely important to me. So I guess, you know, my question to you is, and this is supposed to be uncomfortable, right? It's like, yeah. where, where are you now um, you know, with your faith? And mm-hmm. what kind of a journey have you been on? What kind of advice do you have about people who, who are maybe struggling with some of those issues? Definitely. I think uh, faith in general is a long journey for anybody who you know, was born and raised in that environment. 
uh, obviously, you know, my family and wasn't accepting. I've still got a brother out there who's a, a Baptist minister that wasn't accepting at all and isn't accepting. Um, you know, when I was growing up, it was I was raised in the church. I'm the only male in my family that wasn't a Baptist minister. So it was a, a long journey for me. Um, and, I, you know, probably in college years, you know, I was still spiritual, um, but I lost a lot of faith. You know, you, you lose that uh if, if God was so great, why would he be allowing this to happen? Mm-hmm. You know, so you, you lose a lot of that faith. Uh, what really helped me was actually returning to a rural area. And once I returned, uh, I got involved with, you know, a little group that was uh, spiritual. And, you know, one of the people really that, that brightened my life was they said, um, for so long, you know, you were raised up in a church that, you know, put God in a box. You know, they say that God's all powerful, but they've been putting a, him in a box for all these years, saying that he can't make somebody LGBTQ. He can't, you know, these this isn't the natural thing that he's able to do. And so I think that really helped me uh, return a lot to my faith and a lot to, you know, relying on God for a lot of things. Mm-hmm. Um there was a moment in which it was like, you know, I was down on my luck. It was literally the the lowest I'd ever been. And it was almost like, you know, I get this voice that's like, you know, you have enough of everything you need uh, to survive right now, to get mm-hmm. to tomorrow. Right. And at that point, I was like, you know what, I do. And that allowed me to focus on, you know, my future in terms of each day I could say, okay, I've got everything I need to survive I can rely on God. I can rely on, you know, the love that he's provided around me with all this community, these different people. And so that's what really propelled me into my spiritual uh, self today. So I'm not a practicing uh, Baptist anymore. I wouldn't say that, but I'm very Christian. I'm very spiritual. Um, and I try to share that message more than than the one that I grew up with. That is just awesome. I'm, I'm thank you for sharing that. Yeah. I appreciate <laughs> you conveying that. I know that's a difficult question for mm-hmm. people, um, but I think it's something that people need to talk more about. Yes. You know, people in the LGBT community have been so challenged by religious organizations o- over time, and it's getting so much better now. There's so much progress that's being made. Um, the one other don't that I want to give you. Um, is, is something that's near and dear to me is, is I think people need to not, f- not have that sense that they need to choose between being part of the LGBT community and being religious or right. to have a faith identity. Um, you don't have to choose. You really don't. You, you, you can have both. You can be both. Absolutely. Um, I've done it. Many, many people have done it. Mm-hmm. It's like sometimes it's a little awkward. It's a little difficult to make it work. But um, you, you can do it. And uh, not only can you do it, I urge people to do that because, you know, we need to be open and visible and part of these faith communities so that people get to know us and accept us and love us you know, and, and see God in us the way we see God in them. So just don't feel like you have to choose between your identity as a queer person and, and being a religious person. You can do it all. Absolutely. And that's uh, one of the main reasons we started this show um, is, you know, I think a lot of kids in rural areas, they go through this this faith journey. Uh, and this is something that they're going to experience. And I think it's so important to let them know, you know, even though you're going through this, you've still got, you know, a God that loves you. And, you know, over time, you're going to learn 
the ways and the reasons and all the things that you know he's allowed to happen in, in your life. Um, so spirituality is, is tremendously important for our viewers. Uh, we really appreciate you talking about that subject too. Uh, so with that, um, is there any uh, you want to say when your book's going to be released, where people can order it? Sure, sort of absolutely. So the book is going to be released on September 1st. We're going to have a book launch here in Louisville at Carmichael's Bookstore. It's available now for pre-order. It's at uh, You can call your local independent bookstore, and they'll be happy to order it for you. Um, you can also go online at Amazon.com, order it there. The University of Notre Dame Press is, is selling online right now. Uh, but they'll be shipped, I think, September 1st. We've got a whole range of uh, different activities planned around, uh, you know, promoting the book. I'll be going to a lot of colleges and universities. I'll be here, Louisville, Kentucky, Notre Dame, Western, uh, St. Mary's College. I mean, there, there are quite a few different places I'm going to be going to, you know, sign and read and, and talk about the book. So it's it's going to be a pretty, pretty um, vigorous fall for me, I think. I got a lot of things yeah. on the schedule, but, um, you know, I'm up for it because the book was a labor of love. It's something that uh, I felt called by God to, to do and, you know, put the words down. Um, otherwise, I never would have done it myself. So, um, you know, it's something that I, I felt like I needed to do, and, and now I have to finish the job and get out there and, and, you know, spread the word about it and promote it. Definitely. And we're definitely going to help spread that word as well, uh, and we'll release some things closer to time in terms of, you know, promoting the book and stuff as well. Great. Uh, we just want to say thank you, though, for being on the show today. Um, this is, uh, we've done some shows, but this is honestly the first one that's given me true goosebumps. Uh, so just to imagine and relive some of those moments with you has been just tremendous today on this six-year anniversary. And, you know, I just want to, I want to say thank you on behalf of all LGBTQ plus people across America, uh, especially in Kentucky, where, where we've all looked up to you and you've been a major role model and mentor for all of us. So Thank you to you, Michael, and, and your two sons. Uh, we appreciate all of you. Thank you, Curtis. Today, for the Sunset Clarity segment, I'd like to discuss keeping a positive mental health through stressful times when our viewpoints or equal rights are being challenged. For those of us living through court decisions that ultimately decide our rights to equality, the process can be devastating on our mental health. The highly politicized environments surrounding LGBTQ cases cause heightened animosity for those that oppose equality, which can lead to increased fear as we navigate our lives and fear for our safety in unaccepting environments or homes. The things that are said by the, our political leaders as well as family members can echo in our ears for what seems like an eternity. I would encourage regardless of our legal disagreements that we still promote kindness and keep our rhetoric kind to each other. One of the harshest things you can do for your own mental health is to defend your views in ways that you will regret later. Never sacrifice your own compassion and kindness when seeking it from others. We often come to regret when we aren't professional with our arguments and instead turn to hurtful jokes that attack the person with beliefs that are different than our own. Rather than simply sticking to the main persuasive points that led us to the conclusions we believe ourselves. So while jokes and memes may be funny in the moment, I hope you realize that sharing that can actually be damaging to your own mental health as well as your persuasive ability. 
Remember that people's views can change over time as they develop a better understanding with new information. Without changed views over time, the United States would never have progressed on equal rights and other concepts of liberty and justice. We should continue that progress and persuasion and steer clear of blatantly divisive statements that only push our opponents away from listening to us. We can wrap up this segment with a simple mantra that holds true even in political debate. When you are kind to others, you are actually being kind to yourself. Well, folks, that's all the time we have for today. Don't forget to come on back now. I know we all love a little vibration, so if you're not already, go ahead and subscribe to this podcast. And we will surprise you on occasion with a new release vibration in your pocket. But in the meantime, if you find yourself alone or crossing new horizons along the rainbow trail and you need a friend or even a laugh, to get you through those dark and stormy nights. Holler on out to us at www.weatheringrainbows.com where you can find shelter in the blogs, videos, and other episodes that will hopefully keep you out of a whole heap of trouble. So until next time, y'all, giddy up, be true to yourself, and make the best of life. And wherever the wild tracks may lead you, may the rainbow Always touch your shoulder.